Hi, this is Wayne Zell and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, your fast-paced video cast that's designed to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. And it features entrepreneurs and educational moments that are of interest to our listeners who are mostly entrepreneurs. And today I have an entrepreneur guest today, and that is Jen Dalton. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thanks for being on Blueprint for Wealth. Thank you, Wayne, for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. I, I met Jen recently. We're part of a group uh, that is a Vistage Trusted Advisor group, and we all have to reveal our personal secrets. So I learned a lot about Jen, and she comes from a family of entrepreneurs and is from Georgia originally. Tell us a little bit about your background. Growing up in Georgia is an experience in the all in of itself, um, <laughs> but my parents were entrepreneurs in the retail business. And I think my husband was very glad because they were in the shoe business. So nothing better than, you know, being married to someone who the shoes at least come at a discount, maybe. Uh, but growing up, I was an only child. So my parents would take me to every business dinner, the shoe shows to, to buy shoes, jewelry to buy jewelry. And so I really had an interesting experience getting to know people, uh, getting to understand business early on. I was very fortunate. I also think they used me for child labor. Let's be clear. I did lots of inventory moving in the stock room, all kinds of stuff. But it, it really gave me a sense of employees, customers, knowing your customer, knowing your audience. Uh, my dad would always tell me, pick out the shoe that you think we should buy. And I'd be like, this one. And he'd be like, that is not going to sell in Georgia. So <laughs> let's pick a different one, right? Maybe in New York City. That's right. Maybe in New York City. All so right. I think for me, it was a beautiful hands-on learning experience. I was in retail too growing up. My parents were in the jewelry business and uh, I learned, you know, I was part of that child labor uh, <laughs> abuse, let's yes. call it abuse, <laughs> but you learn a lot about business, just working around people that are in business and dealing with customers and stuff. Did you yeah. actually sell shoes in the store? I would. I mean, um, by the time I got into high school, I would sell some in the store, but I was also waiting tables, which is one of my favorite jobs. Also getting to know people, getting yeah. to know familiar faces in a small town. Um, some sure. from Augusta, Georgia. So it's the second biggest CSRA in Georgia, but it's still a small town. Um, but yeah, I think learning how at a young age to be confident and to be able to sell or to be able to solve a problem or to be able to work 10 hour days. Uh, my parents showed a lot of work ethic. I'm sure for you, your family showed a ton of work ethic. And that was huge and very formative for me. Yeah, this I'm time sure. of year, particularly, oh. this was the big season yes. for, for what we did. And we were seven days a week. Yes. Um, but I'm sure, you know, the same thing, you know, people are shopping and they want to get their Christmas presents or their Hanukkah presents or whatever presents they want to get. And this is the okay. time of year when people do it. So I also remember that you told us that you were at Cap One at one point in time. What were you doing there? So I studied HR and international management in college. And uh, I also did crew in high school. So I really had a, an early stage, I would say, idea of coaching and working with people. And so my first job at Cap One was actually in their check processing division in Richmond. So it was operations. And my job was to motivate people to key in check amounts. <laughs> and so that's a pretty, that's a pretty tough first job. I was for, I was 22 and there were 24 people. And so how um, did you motivate people to input check data? 
type faster. No, um, <laughs> you really have to get to know people and understand their career goals and how are you coaching them in addition to that so that they feel seen, valued and heard. Um, and we would have competitions and try to make it as fun as possible. Um, obviously, you can hit goals and you can celebrate, right? Recognition is huge. I think that's something that we need to see more of. If you ask most people, they don't feel recognized enough. And it's one of the easiest things you can do to help people feel valued and want to be a part of a team and understand why is this meaningful? You know, because you're doing this job, it does add up to a bigger picture. And you went to Georgetown for an executive MBA. Is that correct? I did. I was a glutton for punishment. I love Georgetown. I went there undergraduate as well. And then I went back and got my exec MBA. And that was really the pivotal point where I, I launched my business after that. So that is what inspired you to launch Brand Mirror. First of all, the name is fascinating. What does it imply? Why did you pick that name? Uh, nothing that, you know, four best friends and four bottles of wine can't help you come up with. But there was a process to it. I, I found uh, four of my girlfriends who were all in branding and marketing. And we really talked about what do I want this business to be about? Why am I doing this? And many of my classmates, while I was at Georgetown, you know, we all went back to get our exec MBA, paid a lot of money and wanted to level up our career. For many people, that would mean meaning going from VP to the C-suite or something like that, or leaving military, transitioning into private sector, public sector mm -hmm. either. So I really wanted to think about, you know, brand is about a promise. What are our promises that we make? Um, that we're committing to someone, if you work with us or buy this service or product, here's what you should expect. And Mirror was really about reflection. I think that self-reflection is critical, knowing who you are, your values, what matters to you, what's the impact you're trying to make, how are you different, where do you add value, where do you create value. And so Brand Mirror uh, really came out of that brainstorming session of branding and reflection and all of these things, because I think before you can really impact others in the biggest way possible, you have to know who you are and what you stand for and what matters. So to emphasize, it's not about bragging about yourself. It's about providing information to people so that they know what your value proposition is, right? That's right. I love... Um, Lots of fun phrases. So personal branding is not personal bragging. If you're bragging, you're doing it wrong. And the phrase I am probably known for the most is telepathy is not a strategy. Many people are wonderful and we will never know because they feel like if they talk about their accomplishments, it's bragging. And the reality is unless we can tell people what we're good at, they will not know. And so we want to find a way to tell your story that's meaningful that's accurate. Uh, and that's clear. You know, if, if I said, Hey, Wayne, let's go to lunch. And you're like, okay, well, what do you, what do you like to eat? I don't know. Pick anywhere. That's not helpful. If I told you, Wayne, I love North Italia in Reston, Virginia. It's not far away. Let's meet there. That's much easier. And the same is true for people. If you tell your story and you say, I'm really good at transforming organizations where the execution hasn't been there, but they've got great strategy, but they're missing how to use technology to bring their strategy to life and execute on that. Great. I know how you can help me. 
And so the clearer we are on where we add value, it's so much easier for people to know, oh, I should hire you or I should be a partner with you, et cetera. So yes, definitely not bragging. It's definitely knowing the promises that you want to offer and make to people if they decide to work with you. What has been the greatest challenge that you faced with a client when it comes to personal branding? There's a short answer, which, it, it, and then I'll give you a little bit longer answer. Sure. I did have one client who wanted me to fabricate his story more, embellish. Let's use embellish. Okay. Um, I don't do that. <laughs> like, I have lots of integrity. We're going to tell your story. We'll tell it the best way we can. And if you're missing evidence, then we'll find a way to help build that evidence, whether it's okay. through volunteer work or whatever. But I, I definitely believe that your story has to be authentic, has to be true, has to be genuine. Some people find that hard because you you still want to get paid and have business, but that, that's an easy one for me. I think harder ones are where um, people have to let you know, people have to be open to sharing who they are. You have to be vulnerable. When I get to know people through our work, I really want to know who they are. And sometimes when you're uncovering what people are good at or maybe what they're not good at, right? One of the books I've written is called Listen. It's about difficult conversations. And so I definitely have those with clients where it's talking about, hey, I asked your employees how they perceive you. Here are some of the words and phrases we got back. These were really exciting. And these are exciting because they tell us where to focus and work. But my client might be like, wow, I didn't know that they saw me that way. And so just as we're building up someone's confidence in who they are, because you can be surprised how insecure leaders can be. Um, but owning up to that and, and really thinking about, okay, here's where I'm at. Here's how we move forward. To me, it's always about moving forward. You, know, you can look back and reflect and learn, but it's about now what? Now what do we do next um, huh. to really make an improvement? Let's say I've got a, a person that is an entrepreneur just starting out though, and they don't, they haven't really defined what their value proposition is, or they haven't earned the trust of others to be able to articulate that, you know, they are the best at this or that. Mm. How do you build that confidence, self-confidence? How do you build a brand from someone who is just starting out? Such a great topic. I, I do a lot of mentoring and work with students uh, and even professionals, you know, I just had a call recently with someone who's transitioning industries. They can bring operational expertise, but they still have to learn about that industry. Um, what I find, you can build your brand at any time. You don't want to build your brand when you need it. You want to build your brand before you need it. So okay. if you're a student or if you're transitioning industries, or you're, let's say you're transitioning from working for someone to launching a business, it's okay to let people know where you're at on that journey. You know, when Bitcoin first came out, or as you think about AI, everybody had to start somewhere. So if you're showing, hey, I've been to these five conferences, these were the amazing speakers, here's where some of the trends they brought up for AI, you can write about that. You're not saying you're the expert, you're saying you care enough to pay attention to what's happening, and you're fully invested in learning more. To me, that speaks volumes. It may not mean that you're the AI expert, but I know you're out there trying to be smarter about it. Obviously, if you're going, and there are people who do this, especially during the pandemic, if you're going from marketing to launching a restaurant, because that's your passion, 
hopefully you're really good at cooking. Right. <laughs> hopefully. Um, hopefully. <laughs> Restaurants are almost, um, I think maybe worse than retail because they're hard. <laughs> so if you have a good team, you can make that transition, but you do have to build up evidence if you want people to invest in you. So maybe you start out with a, um, a pop-up in the weekend you know, market and you do that for six months and you get feedback. What dishes are good? What do you think? And you start to build a following. Some people want to have the answer tomorrow or be at their destination tomorrow. The reality is sometimes the best way to get there is just step by step. Do focus groups, ask questions, see what people think, see what's missing. Um, we don't have to do it on our own. There are lots of people who we need to help us, you know, bring that vision to life. But I think when you're in transition and you're trying to build or adjust your personal brand, it takes a lot of, of legwork, um, digitally online, but also in person mm -hmm. to change perceptions. Do you help clients with their digital online presence? I do. LinkedIn is one of my favorite platforms. Um, it's a fascinating platform. Most people think, oh, that's just for the job search. About 60% of the content on LinkedIn is all about business development, thought leadership, conversations, discussions. And so one, if you want to do research, it's a fantastic place to go. Um, two, if you want to grow your network and reach out, which takes some courage, uh, it's a great place to do that. I was talking to someone who's in life insurance and I said, yeah, let's talk about how you use search and how you use it well and effectively on LinkedIn. And Literally two hours later, they texted me. They're like, oh my gosh, I did what you said. I called three people and now we have a follow-up phone call with each of them. So you help them with the strategy in their business, not just branding, because branding really evolves from a strategy and a business plan, right? I think business strategy and brand strategy go hand in hand. You really can't separate them. A lot of people think about brand as a name, a logo, colors, fonts. Right. A right. brand is so much more than that. It's who's your target audience? How are you going to make money? How are you going to be compelling? What's your message? It's all of those things. And so, yes, when I talk with people about their brand, personal brand, which for an entrepreneur probably becomes your company brand. Um, if you want to sell your business later, that's a whole other conversation about what do you name your business, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I think they really do go hand in hand. I know that you've done a lot of branding for yourself. Um, you've done a lot of speaking. You're a Vistage speaker. Tell us about the experience at the White House, because I knew that uh, I heard that you had spoken at the White House at one point, which is kind of exciting. It's very exciting. Um, it was a very interesting time. It was before the election of Trump and Hillary having their face off, right? And so you have Obama leading into that transition. And so many people, and if you're in the D.C. area, you know that when a new party comes in, the old party goes out and there's all kinds of transitions, et cetera. Well, supposedly the old party goes out, but it doesn't supposedly. always work that way so That's easily. That's true. Well, and if the same party stays in power, Democrat, Democrat, <laughs> Republican, Republican, right. there's lots of musical chairs. People that were in the White House go here. People that are in the State Department go here, et cetera. Okay. But when we have that, where a lot of people thought Hillary would win, and then they realized that that was not the case... Um, that's actually after, right after that election, two, two or three weeks later, I was asked to come in and speak. And so a lot of the people in the room were from all over department of education, state department, you name it. They were there because now all of a sudden they had to think about their personal brand. 
their online presence, LinkedIn, their resume. How do I tell my story? I've got to go find a job right now. I had one lined up, but now that this other party won, uh, it's not lined up anymore. So it was a really, it was hard, right? To have all of these people all of a sudden now need to change and pivot and do something different. So it was very humbling. And uh, I mean, you know, you walk through the executive office and, and everything. You're just, it's overwhelming. It's beautiful. It's the center of our country. Um, from a, How did you get that? How did you get that gig? How did you get that speaking engagement? I had a person through, you know, one of my classmates at Georgetown had had me speak at Department of Education a few weeks before. And then after the election, they were like, and we need you to come back. And I was like, absolutely. I'll come back. Um, happy to happy to help people figure out where do they go next. The part of your mission is mine is to help people is to help people. And you've, yes. you've done a lot in the nonprofit world. Tell us about the women's giving circle, how that came about, how you started that up. Cause I think that's a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful, uh, outreach program to help others. I am a big fan of philanthropy and I think it, you know, for any company, figuring out how you want to give back, how you want to help your employees give back can be very powerful. For me, the giving circle came about a good friend of mine, Judy Redpath, asked me to attend an event. And the giving circle is a group of anywhere from 40 to 50 women. We put money into a pot each year. And then we take that pot of money and we give out grants specifically to nonprofits who work with girls and young women in STEM. And so their programs tend to last anywhere from six weeks to 12 months, just depends on what the nonprofit does. It could be in the environment. It could be in engineering, all sorts mm -hmm. of things. And the fun thing is we get to have nonprofits in that space come and present their company. And then we, it's like, it's like a pitch, right? It's a pitch competition. If you think of it, just like an entrepreneur would pitch their business. Nonprofits come and say, here's how we would use the funds. Here's how many girls we can help or young women. And then we usually pick two to four every year and we fund them. And then we obviously look for results and metrics and numbers. But it's a great way to, one, expand your network with like-minded people. We know that for women and closing the inequality gap and the equity gap, the earlier you start in helping them feel confident in science, technology, engineering, or math or STEM, I like steam because you add the arts, um, mm, but mm, I like that too. I know I'm a big fan of steam. And so, you know, the earlier you start one, the more likely you are to close the gap, but also it's cheaper to close the gap earlier than later. And so it's amazing how much programs that just help to get girls and young women confident in themselves and in engineering, science and math goes a really long way one for critical thinking, but two, just feeling like they can now go into a field that they really weren't being told they could pursue. Did you create this group or you basically, what was your role in, in helping it uh, grow to where it is today? It's a pretty prominent group. It's very prominent. Um, I, I just became a member. Uh, well, it started in 2014. There are a group of founding members. I think I joined in 2018. And so I've been a member for a while now, our 10th mm -hmm. anniversary is obviously this coming year in 2024. What's cool is we'll have raised over half a million dollars. We'll have helped over 5,000 girls and young women. Um, and we'll have granted over half a million dollars out. And so 
That part's really cool. I certainly don't do it by myself. I, I've been um, chair of the giving circle, but every year somebody raises their hand and said, okay, I'll be chair or co-chair. So there are tons of women who have come before me, will come after me, who have grown it. Judy Redpath is one. Uh, Catherine Shot Murray is another who I know you know. And mm-hmm. so it, it's a lot of women who come together and make it possible. Um, that's also why I love the group. Surrounded by inspiring, strong women, is it's lots of fun to get together and do, you know, do events together. How long does it take to build a personal brand competently? I think if you have someone who's really helping you, the fastest you could do it, um, which I don't think it's the right way, would be six months. I really think at least 12 months. If you're an expert who's never done stuff and now you want to, so you've got a lot of the knowledge and expertise, maybe even you know, um, content for your company, but you haven't converted it for yourself, I would say 12 months. I think if you're trying to build the brand of the business plus your personal brand, your employees' brands, that takes more like three years. I say wow. that because, you know, as you know, when, when people want to exit a business, depending on the brand of the owner, depending on the brand of the business, you may have a lot of adjustments to do, depending on succession planning. What's the reputation of the person that might take over from you? Do you have the right team? Have you taken your knowledge and codified it and protected it from an IP standpoint and embedded it in your business to increase the business value? That's why I think at a minimum, it can take three years for a business to document their processes, to have their values captured and embedded in the customer journey. It gets much more interesting and complicated and fun, (laughs) depending on what you think. Um, When you start to think about it for the sake of a successful exit, when you're thinking about all the moving parts, if it's just a personal brand, it, you know, it's, it's different. It's individualized as opposed to a company. Exactly. And so, you know, I have that issue myself. I mean, I have a business, we have a good brand, but how do you pass that brand onto the next generation? And so I think we've asked a lot of questions. If you were advising me for free on this broadcast, no, just kidding. Just here only, just here only. <laughs> one, one day only. If you were advising somebody in trying to transition their brand and their reputation to sort of the next generation, what would you, what would be the first, second, third steps that you would take and have them take in trying to transition that? Because it is succession planning. Absolutely. I think one of the first steps is to know where you are. Sometimes we think our brand is better than it is. We think our customers love us, all of us, everything about us. I think it's important to know how are you perceived? What do your customers really think? Do you have Google reviews, right? Have you done um, surveys to really get a sense of what parts of your business are awesome? What needs to be better? Where do you really differentiate and add value? Understanding that sort of current state, then you can start to think about, well, what is it that makes you a successful leader? What do you how do you show up? And then if someone is going to replace you, how are you introducing them? Because your clients and customers will have to meet them to know, like, and trust them. Yes. And so it's starting to bring in by association, your team, helping people know who your team is. 
So they feel confident when you step out that they know the rest of your team has got it, right? CEOs become the rainmakers. And then if they leave, people get very worried about the health of the business. So it's imperative to have a good leadership team, really clear roles and responsibilities. Um, And again, it shouldn't be just you sharing expertise. Maybe it's you being interviewed by the person that is succeeding you. Maybe you go to... Right. And vice versa. You go to partners and meetings together. You you just bring them in so people get to know, like, and trust them because no one's going to be just like you. That's the tricky part. You got to be able to let go a little bit and bring in your your next people. That's tough. And let them share the limelight and let them bask in the sunlight of what you may have left. Share the stage. Share the stage. Damn. It's hard to share the stage. I've always been the lead. (laughs) Always been the lead. See, anyway. I've been the lead. I've been like, I had four lines and I've also been the stage manager. So I love all these parts. They're all important. That's because you love theater and that's a I good do. thing. That's a good thing. So just as a last question, what advice would you give a young entrepreneur, woman or man, if they're just starting out, you know, we talked about building a brand, but what advice would you give to them today so that they can look five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road and say, I wish, I wish uh, I could go to Jen and say, thank you right now. What, what would be that, that key advice, that key point that you would want to lay out for these entrepreneurs? One, I think it's very important to know what are you really good at and what are you not good at? And, and what's that expertise? It could be a soft skill or hard skill, but mm-hmm. know what you're good at and know when you need to bring in people. Two, I think it's important to love the work you do. That doesn't mean it's easy all the time. It often means it's even harder. It's very important not just to have passion for what you do, but purpose, right? I believe you have to have the skills and the strength and the passion. So think about what you're curious about all the time. What do you want to learn more about? What's getting your attention? And think about diving deep into that. And just having fun, asking questions. I think the third thing is lots of people think, oh, I have a great idea. This is going to be amazing. Um, Maybe go do research. See if there's a problem that you're actually solving. Not Mm -hmm. just, I have a solution. Well, where's the problem? And who's really willing to pay for that? So thinking through your business model, thinking through how are you uniquely qualified uh, to do this? I have Plenty of people I've heard say, I don't have any competitors. <laughs> yes, we all have sure. competitors. Yes, and if it's not a direct competitor, it means they're doing something else with their time or with their money. So it's okay to, you know, pause, do research, and really be open to the idea of <laughs> you don't know enough yet. Go ask people, go learn. Um, but I think entrepreneurs will save the world. I think. Entrepreneurs are amazing and inspiring. The problems they're solving are fascinating. Chances are somebody has already had a similar idea. So go out and look and see what's out there. And then that can help you navigate to where you may want to double down or focus or join a team that's already existing and grow it. So there's just so many things to to think about, but go where you're curious and where you have skills that you can really add value. What great advice. Jen Dalton, if somebody wants to hire you to tell them how to do their thing? How do they reach you? Well, the password is no. Um, 
They can reach me at my website, brandmirror.com. Certainly connect with me on LinkedIn. More than happy to connect with people. Just let me know you, you know, you heard me on this podcast. Um, I guess I can give my email out, jendalton at brandmirror.com. Not that you couldn't have figured that out, but yeah, shoot me an email. If there's something in the conversation today that sparked a question, feel free to email me too. I'm happy to get back to you and respond. I love having discussions and conversations about all of these things. As you can tell, I'm passionate about it and I'm always, always learning and happy to add value or, or save you some time which I love all the insight that's on these podcasts are doing because it's about, you know, keeping someone from making the same mistakes we might've made. Yep. We all make mistakes. We continue to make them. We just learn from yes. them and try not to repeat them. That's all. <laughs> that's right. Thank you so much for being a special guest on Blueprint for Wealth. Thank you very much for the invitation. It, this has been a great podcast and stay tuned next time for another special guest and educational moment on Blueprint for Wealth. Have a great week. This is Wayne Zell and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, a fast-paced half hour of special topics and special guests that are designed to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. Blueprint for Wealth is brought to you by Zell Law, law firm located in Reston, Virginia and Savannah, Georgia, serving clients all across the country on matters involving estates and trusts, taxes, business planning, and fiduciary services. If you'd like to know more about Zell Law, visit us on the web at zelllaw.com. Today, we're going to have a special topic and a special guest. Today's special topic is focused on the choice of entity, which is a very important topic for anybody starting up a business or trying to figure out what the right type of entity is for your business. So today's special topic is choice of entity, but focusing on sole proprietorships. So we're going to learn a little bit more about what a sole proprietorship is and why it may or may not be the best choice for you. First, what is a sole proprietorship? It's referring to a business that's run and owned by one owner. There's only one owner in a sole proprietorship. If you have two or more people owning a business together, it's going to be treated at least as a partnership automatically. With a sole proprietorship, you still may need to register the business for certain purposes. For example, the requirements vary from state to state, but in Virginia, you may have to register the business for the so-called BPOL tax, which is a gross receipts tax that every business, with few exceptions, pays in Virginia. You also may have to file for unemployment if you have employees, so you have to register the business as an employer. For federal purposes, you probably should get an employer ID number or taxpayer ID number for the business separate from your social security number. This will allow you to open bank accounts and do lots of things, including register, register the business for unemployment, federal unemployment tax. If you're operating the business under a fictitious name, if your name was Jim Jones, but you wanted to operate the business under, say, Jonesify, you would need to register that in the local jurisdiction where you're operating. And then, of course, if you want a special name that you want to protect for federal and state law purposes, you may want to get a trademark, but you may need a trademark attorney to help you with that. Sole proprietorships are treated as pass-through entities, if you will, for tax purposes, unless you elect special status. 
That means that all of your income and your expenses flow through and are reported on Schedule C on your tax return that is typically a Form 1040 that you would file. The losses that are generated from the business activities, particularly in the early years, may be used to offset not only the revenue from the business, but other income that you earn. But you've got to be careful. You can't lose money forever as a sole proprietorship. And the reason is that the IRS may treat the business that you're calling a business as a hobby, and they may disallow the excess losses and not allow you to use them against other income. Any income that you generate, net income, from the business is going to be subject to self-employment tax as a sole proprietor. That's the equivalent of federal uh, insurance contributions known as Social Security. But instead of you only paying Social Security for yourself, you're paying it as an employer. So it's generally twice the rate. And of course, if you've got income from self-employment and you've got net income from the business, you're going to have to start paying estimated taxes on special vouchers that are filed with the Internal Revenue Service on 1040 ES, as well as in your state of residence where you're working. These estimated taxes basically take the place of withholding taxes that you would normally generate. Now, sole proprietorships are rather risky ventures to be entering into. Why? Because the owner is personally liable for the business-related obligations and debts incurred while operating in a business. So what that means is, if you fail to pay a supplier and the supplier gets a judgment against you, and against your business, you have to pay out of your personal assets. Of course, insurance is always advisable when you're conducting a business, but can it fully protect you? Not always. Commercial insurance, for example, typically doesn't cover slip and fall business uh, liability that might, might occur on your property. So you may need to make sure that you've got plenty of insurance, both commercial insurance and umbrella insurance to cover your activities. It's always recommended to get plenty of insurance, but even with insurance, it may not be enough and your insurance may have exclusions that aren't covered. So what do you do? You should incorporate. Incorporating means choosing between an LLC or a corporate form, a corporation, because those will afford you limited liability protection. Now, an interesting note, if you operate a business and you want your spouse involved, your spouse can be involved in the business without creating a partnership for tax purposes and therefore having to create an additional tax return on Form 1065. So the IRS has ruled that you can involve your spouse in the business without requiring them to be treated as an employee or as an owner of the business. It sort of goes against the general rule that someone who works in the business generally must be either an independent contractor, an employee, or an owner for purposes of operating the business. And in this way, if you involve your spouse and your spouse is willing to work for free, you can avoid rec record keeping that you would normally have to maintain and registration that you would normally have to maintain if the individual were treated as an employee. It also avoids additional self-employment tax that you would incur on treating the individual as an owner. So no partnership return is required in that instance. 
So that's a brief example of choice of entity involving a sole proprietorship. Usually we recommend against using a sole proprietorship. If you can, we would want to see you try to incorporate either as a limited liability company or a corporation. Future episodes of Blueprint for Wealth are going to deal with those types of entities, so stay tuned. And also stay tuned for our special guest who will be joining us momentarily. Thanks for watching Blueprint for Wealth.